So if you were with us last week, you will likely recall that we came to a real turning point in Mark's gospel. For nearly two and a half years, those that followed him, they'd struggled greatly to understand just exactly who this Jesus is. They saw clearly enough to know that they were ready to leave behind their old life because he had called them. They were willing to leave their families, their businesses, their friends, their old religious system in order to follow after this Jesus. They saw clearly enough to continue following him even when he didn't meet up to their earthly expectations. They saw clearly enough to continue following after him even after so many others had fallen away. They saw clearly enough not to run when news came that Herod and the other religious leaders sought to destroy this Jesus. And now came the moment of true confession. As Jesus and his disciples, they were as far away as you could get within the boundaries of Israel, as far away from the uh, place of Jerusalem, as far away from the center of religion in Israel as you could get. Caesarea Philippi. They're at the base of Mount Hermon, where the Banya stream begins its journey down to the Jordan River. It was there that Jesus looked to his disciples and he asked them, Who do you say that I am? I know what the crowds say. Some of them believe that I'm perhaps John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say that I'm Elijah. Others perhaps Jeremiah the prophet. But I'm asking you now, who do you say that I am? As the Gospel of Matthew tells us, the Apostle Peter, he absolutely nailed it. He was dead on when he responded, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. This was not a confession that comes from the work of men. This is not a thing that can be revealed by flesh and blood. Only God can do this. Only by the hand of God can man come to understand something as wonderful as this. Much like Jesus touching the blind man at the beginning of this section of Mark's gospel, it requires the life-giving, the ear-opening, the eye-opening touch of God to bring man to understand the identity of who this Jesus is. The reality that all those that had been anointed before him, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, everything that these men had been waiting for, that it found its ultimate fulfillment in this one that was standing before them. That everything they had known before, everything had been leading up to this moment right here. The Lord's anointed, the Christ, he was here, face to face, standing before them. And that God hadn't chosen just the best among all men. This wasn't King David, this wasn't Moses, this wasn't Abraham. This was God himself. A virgin shall conceive, she will bear a son, you will call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. That Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus the Christ is God. God not only made the promises, he fulfilled the promises, every single last one of them. The people, they had been waiting, they had been watching, looking for an earthly savior to come, not recognizing that God himself would come to do this because only God himself was capable only God himself could bring about all that needed to happen. This was surely the most glorious news that has ever been heard in all the lands. And yet, instead of sending the disciples out, instead of looking at Peter and the boys and saying, okay, now's the time. Go make this known to all the world. Instead, he swore them to silence, charged them to tell no one. Now, surely there was a number of reasons behind this. But primary had to have been the reality that even the disciples, even those that had received this touch of God, it had eyes to see, these spiritual eyes that could recognize. Even those that had a very clear picture of who Jesus was, they still had no idea what his mission was. They still struggled greatly to understand what is the mission that this Christ is all about. And while we know that the object of saving faith must be the person of Jesus Christ, there is no saving faith apart from looking at the person 
coming to a very clear picture of who Jesus the Christ is, ultimately, we must come to understand what his work is. Not just who the Christ is, but what the Christ came to do. And as we'll see in this morning's text, these disciples, they still had a long way to go. So go ahead and stand to your feet, please. In the reverence of reading of God's word, we return to the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel. We're going to begin reading in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, having eyes to see and ears to hear, we do not yet see as clearly as we would like. We believe your word that it is only through the continued walking with, the continued touch of Jesus Christ our Lord. So we ask that you would bring us to clear sight this morning. Ask us to understand the words that you have spoken here and allow them to penetrate our heart, that we may leave this place changed. We pray this and every other prayer in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All God's people said, Amen. So immediately following Peter's confession, the Lord begins to teach the disciples something new. This is truly earth-shattering. This is something they had never considered before. So this was going to be an ongoing teaching. This wasn't just a one-time deal. What we're going to find here in this middle section of Mark's gospel, chapters 8 through 10, is three cycles where Jesus is going to express very plainly to the disciples about his death and his resurrection. Then we'll see as the disciples are confused about what it is that Jesus has just plainly taught. And then we'll see Jesus lovingly correcting them, touching them again to help them to see more clearly what it is that he has just taught them. Now, surely there were others. Surely this was not just three times that Jesus taught this to these men. Surely there was other unrecorded teachings. And yet we see these three recorded for, for us here because... What's happening is, this is the new major focus behind Jesus' ministry. As he closes the door, as he leaves behind him this very public Galilean ministry, and he sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to spend the remainder of his earthly life, the months that remain, he's going to spend the remainder of his earthly life focusing on bringing his disciples to clear sight, to preparing them for what awaits him in Jerusalem and what awaits them after he returns to the Father. Now, we must make no mistake, while this is new news to the disciples, this is not something new to God. God does not need to, nor does he ever, need to make reactions, adjustments. He doesn't need to adjust the plan along the way. God had decreed from all eternity that this is what was going to happen. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says that this was part of God's definite plan and foreknowledge. This was the very reason, the eternal reason behind Jesus' coming. This was not an audible at the line. This was not a last-second adjustment. God had determined from eternity past that he would send his son and that all that his son has just said would happen. This was not news to God. This was not an adjustment by God. God didn't look back into the Old Testament and say, well, that didn't work. Let me try something different. This was the plan for the coming of the Christ. But again, for these disciples, we simply cannot understand how controversial, how mind-blowing, how earth-shattering this really was. I mean, just imagine. You have left everything hoping Perhaps maybe even believing that this man that calls you himself, that he might be the Christ. As we've discussed all throughout Mark's gospel, for the first century Jewish person, they had a very definite idea, a very distinct set of beliefs 
as to who the Messiah, who the Christ would be. They were bound up by all their thoughts from all the earthly prophets and priests and kings that they had seen coming before. Always looking forward to this idea that what God would do is he would come and he would renew this proper temple worship. That the people, that they would be recommitted to the law. That he would restore Israel to its proper place. Perhaps he would remove the Gentiles from this land that was promised to them. And so here you are, two and a half years in. You've been following after Jesus. You've seen the miracles. You've seen the works. You've seen his teachings. He makes a command and even the demons must obey. Finally, he brings you to the point where you recognize, yes, I know for certain, I believe deep down in my heart, truly Jesus is the Christ. Abraham, Moses, King David, they all long to see this day, and yet here I am, an ordinary fisherman, a nobody from an ordinary family in an obscure part of Israel, yet I'm the one standing here face to face seeing Jesus, recognizing that he's the Christ, and then finally I verbalize it. I hear the words coming out of my mouth that Jesus, you are the Christ, and then Jesus affirms it. You know that he affirms this. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And then even in the way that Jesus refers to himself, calling himself the Son of Man, this is his preferred self-designation. He didn't often use the more popular terms like the Messiah or the Christ, perhaps because they were so loaded with faulty ideas about what the Messiah had come to do. But even in this reference to himself as the Son of Man, even though it didn't come with all the sociopolitical ideology that Messiah or the Christ came with, even in hearing about the Son of Man, they couldn't help but have visions. We get that from the prophet Daniel. Daniel's a fascinating book. What happens is most people, we only read the first half of Daniel. Because there's some really popular stories in those first six, six chapters. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the fire, the lion's den. All these, these wonderful stories that we grew up as kids learning. But then as we come to the second half, we see some incredible visions that God has given Daniel. One of the very first ones in chapter 7, we see he's given a vision of four beasts. Just terrifying pictures. One's a lion with eagle wings in the mind of a man. You read that in Scripture, and you go, yeah, 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 a lion with eagle wings. It's a lion that flies. And as smart as a dude. In addition to that, he sees a bear with ribs and flesh hanging from his teeth. In addition to that, he sees a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then more terrifying than that, there's a fourth beast. And this fourth beast, he has teeth like iron. He has feet to trample on all the others. He has ten horns coming out of him. And then there's another small horn that pops up. And on this one small horn, there's all these eyes that are around him. And these pictures, they represent the kingdoms of the earth. They represent the destruction, the devouring nature of the kingdoms of the earth. They represent the ways in which they will oppose and oppress and abuse God's people, the way they will speak against God. Just a horrific image. And then what we find there is the fiery throne. What we find there is the Ancient of Days. This is God himself, holy and pure, and powerful. And he comes and he takes his seat of judgment there. And he destroys the fourth beast. And he strips the others of their power. And then right there in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, we're introduced to this one, this Christ, the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came out to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. You see, church, we sometimes look backwards at the Jewish people and we go, man, where did they get these ideas that the Messiah wasn't supposed to die? From Scripture. 
They hadn't manufactured this idea that the Son of Man, that the Christ, that the Messiah, that he would come in great power and might, that he would be given authority and dominion, that he would bring peace and justice and order to all the world. God had painted this picture. And yet for centuries they had waited. They had suffered. They had served under these pagan kings, under these people that had oppressed them greatly. And so surely they found great promise. They found great hope in these promises praying that God might see fit to allow them to live long enough to see the coming of the Christ. This is what was hardwired into the minds of these people that Jesus was first talking to. And this is absolutely critical for us understanding of this text. Frankly, for us to understand any text rightly, we've got to be able to put ourselves in the spot of these that heard it first. This is one of the most fundamental rules for interpreting Scripture. We must understand not just the words that are said, but how would they have first been heard by the original audience? Because listen, this is the living Word of God, and it will not fade away. God is giving these words to you and to me and to our children that will come after us. But they were delivered through men. They were delivered through men living in a specific time, in a specific place, with a specific original audience. And part of the hard work of understanding what this text is meant to be, what this text is meant to say to us, part of that hard work is understanding how would they have understood it back then? To whom was Jesus speaking? What faulty theology was he fixing? What struggles did they have to overcome in order to hear him rightly? Because as 21st century Americans, as those that have grown up with God's word, we hear that Jesus is the Christ, and we immediately have the benefit of looking backwards through the cross, especially those of us that grew up within the church. Anytime we hear of Jesus the Christ, there are two things that inevitably pop into our minds. Jesus loves me, and Jesus loves me enough that he died for my sins. We're not shocked by this news. When Jesus says that he must, be, he must suffer, and be rejected, be killed and raised again? We say, of course, that's the gospel. We're not shocked by this news at all. And yet for those that are hearing it for the very first time, it's not that we're greater than them. It's not that we're more faithful than them. It's not that we're smarter than them. It's that by God's grace, we live on this side of the cross. It's that by God's grace, he's seen seen, uh, fit to place us here where we've got this revelation, where his word is freely proclaimed. And then on this side of Pentecost, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, is he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we can hear these words and immediately we understand, yes, Jesus is the Christ and the Christ came to die for sinners like me. But for these men that are hearing it for the very first time, if we're going to understand what Peter's response was, frankly, if we're going to prepare our own hearts to rightly respond to this news, we've got to know that for these first century disciples, for these very first followers of Jesus Christ, for these men that were hearing this news for the very first time, it was all but impossible for them to have a picture of anything other than a king riding down on the clouds, swinging a sword, and laying low the nations of the earth. They had no concept of this Messiah dying. Were there not hints? Were there not signs? Were there not pictures? Were there not prophecies in the Old Testament about this? Absolutely. But you've got to understand that the culture where these men grew up, constantly serving, groaning, either in slavery in Egypt or under the rule of the Romans, it was impossible for them to have any idea because they saw all their enemies as physical. They saw all their enemies as out there. They saw all their enemies as the nations of the world, and so they looked for a king swinging a sword. They looked for one that came in immediate and obvious power and might today. No concept that he would come today as a humble, as a humble servant. No concept that he would come today to lay down his life. No concept that the true enemies before them were not physical but spiritual. And that this battle must be fought on a spiritual plane. Trusting that much of the images that they saw in Scripture, these would not be fulfilled until his second coming. They had no concept of the Messiah coming twice. Again, it's not because the words aren't there in the Old Testament. We see them today through the benefit of looking backwards through the cross. 
through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We understand this. But to these first believers, these first folks that heard, they had no idea. And so what this was going to require was an absolute realignment of their hearts and their minds with regards to who the enemy was, with regards to what death really meant, and with regards to the way in which this Messiah would set them free. This was the continued touch that Jesus must give them from here to the cross. Otherwise, they would have no hope of understanding what it was that laid before them. So that's why when we come to verse 32 here, it says that Jesus preached these things to them plainly. Now, he had alluded to his death before. If you look back in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 12, with the Pharisees, they asked for a sign. And Jesus tells them, you'll receive no sign except for the sign of Jonah, who three days and three nights he was in the belly of a great fish. So shall the Son of Man be on the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. This was an illusion. This was a picture. This was a foreshadowing of his death. Or in John 2, we see when he talks about the destruction of the temple, how it would be rebuilt in three days. Again, a picture of himself and of his own death. And we know now, looking backwards to Mark 2, we saw the picture there when his, the Pharisees and the scribes, they came and they asked Jesus, why do your disciples, why do they not fast the way everyone else did? And Jesus says this, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. All of these were signs, they were pointers, they were parables about Jesus' impending death. And yet this was not the time for parables. That was the message to the outsiders. But now with the insiders, to those that Jesus had called to himself, to those that sat at his feet and did what he said, it was a time to speak very plainly. These were the men that were going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take this message to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he was going to speak to them very plainly. The secret of the kingdom of God, it was going to be unveiled before their very eyes. This was not a time to speak in veiled references. He pulls them aside and he tells them plainly, this is what you are seeing before your eyes, that Jesus the Christ has come. He's none other than God himself, God becoming fully man, and that in my coming, with me comes the kingdom of God. And the way that I usher in that kingdom, the way that I defeat your true enemies is I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. Quit worrying about temple worship. You yourselves will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Quit worrying about chasing out the Gentiles. We're going to graft them in. Quit worrying about earthly enemies. The real enemy is sin and Satan and death. And I'm going to take on and conquer them all. We've got to completely realign your heart here. He was speaking very plain, plainly, very straightforward. It says he began to teach. Again, this isn't a one-time deal. This was a continued, ongoing thing. I have to imagine it was dozens, perhaps hundreds of times, that Jesus was explaining this to these men because it was so foreign. It was so backwards. It was so upside down. Because they completely missed so much of the signs that God had given in the Old Testament regarding who the Messiah would be. So it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. I want you to take note of the word there, must. Not only was Christ's suffering and rejection and death guaranteed, it was necessary. But why? Why must Jesus die? And we need to be very careful at this point. I will make a confession to you. I had completed my sermon this week. A normal sermon for me is something like 6,000 words, and I was at about 6,500 words. And then as I read back through them, I realized that I had taken this question right here, and instead of preaching on the eighth chapter of Mark's gospel, I had turned it into a lecture on systematic theology. I'd attempted to answer a question that Jesus himself did not answer in this text. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't provide any kind of real theology about the atonement behind his death. Not at this moment. Not in this morning's text, nor in Luke, nor in Matthew. 
He, we're just left with a straightforward statement, these things must happen. Now, as Jesus continues to walk with them, as we continue to read through God's word, as we continue to allow Jesus to touch time and time and time again, as he unveils this revelation before us, we will see more clearly why this is. That's why it's so important that we gather in this place. That's why it's so important that we continue to sit under this teaching, that we don't just pick and choose the portions of Scripture that we want for ourselves, that we sit under the full counsel of God's Word. That's where we'll get the full diet, the full understanding, the continued touch of Jesus to see clearly what it is that he's teaching us. But for this morning, it must be sufficient to recognize that things are going to play out the way that they should. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Or as Jesus himself says in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was reassuring his disciples, What you see happening in the final days, do not fear. Do not believe for one moment that my Father has lost control. Do not believe for one moment that he has ceded his providence over all creation to someone else. Do not believe for one second that the evil one has stolen sovereignty over the universe from my father. You need to know that all these things are playing out in accordance with my father's plan. These things must happen. Even in the face of evil, especially in the face of evil, we must be reminded of this. Even when staring in the face of death, how badly we need to be reminded of this. Even when you don't understand the theology behind what God is doing, even when you don't understand the greater picture behind what God is doing in that moment, we must be reminded at all times and in every way that God is sovereign. The problem for most believers isn't that they struggle to understand God's sovereignty, it's that they struggle to trust it. They struggle in the middle of life to look and say, I trust you, God, that you are in control and I am not. Nor is the enemy standing before me. And so I trust you with all things that you are working this for my good and for your glory. And what I want more than anything else is to see you glorified in my life. So I embrace whatever it is that is standing before me. Now what is the next right step? For these men, the next right step was turning and heading towards Jerusalem knowing that there awaited the death of their Lord. Do you trust in my sovereignty? If you do, you take this step. If you demand answers, you stand paralyzed in fear. If you say, I will not move until it all makes sense to my tiny pea brain, you'll never move. Instead, trust in my sovereignty, take the step, and go. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So in what ways would Jesus suffer? He'd be betrayed by Judas, one of the twelve. He would cry out in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd be arrested and dragged away in chains. He'd be abandoned by the rest of the followers. He'd be mocked and beaten, crown of thorns upon his head, many lashes. He'd be falsely accused and despised by the very people that sang praises as he came in. Ultimately, he'd be crucified. In all these ways, he was going to suffer. Dear ones, there can be little doubt that we have a Savior that is well acquainted with suffering. No suffering better than any one of us in this room. There's never a moment in our life when we can look to him and say, but you don't know how hard this is, Jesus. And surely he had in mind the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah. I told you that it wasn't that there were no pictures in the Old Testament of the Savior, of the Messiah, of the Christ coming to die. It's just that those were far overshadowed by the pictures of pomp and power and authority and dominion. Those are the things that took root. Because who doesn't want to follow a winner? Who looks and says, you know what, I'm going to hitch my life to to the guy that dies. I'm going to hitch my eternity to the guy that suffers. No, everybody wants to follow a king that looks like Saul, a head taller than everybody, swinging a giant sword. It wasn't that there weren't pictures in the Old Testament of a suffering servant. 
wasn't there weren't pictures that the Messiah must die. It's that they were overshadowed in the minds and hearts of these people by something else. But clearly in Jesus' mind, we see this picture. We read this text every time we come to the Lord's table. And we read in Isaiah 53, 3 through 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But we need to be reminded that even with regards to his own son, it was God's will. It must happen that he would suffer. Scripture tells us that he learned obedience through his suffering and that we have communion with him in our suffering. I'm so ashamed of the number of times I've cried out to the living God as if he knew nothing of suffering. So ashamed of all the times that I believe that I've got it worse than anybody else in all the world as I sit here in a house full of food with relatively healthy family, with a little bit of money in the bank, with clothes on my back, standing before people I love, and I cry out, God, you don't know, I suffer more than anybody ever has. And he, I don't know that God pukes, but I got to think sometimes when he hears the way I talk, he wants to puke. He knows suffering. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. The root word for rejected here is dokamazo. It means to examine or to test. These men that were examining, that were testing Jesus, these weren't the pagans. These weren't the outsiders. These weren't the irreligious folks. These weren't the people that everybody fled from on the street because they were the sinners, the outward sinners, and because they were the unclean. These were the religious leaders. This was the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. These were the elders. These were the scribes, many of them Pharisees, the high priests and the high priests that had come before, many of them the Sadducees. These are the men that examined Jesus. They had traveled north at times in order to see him teach, in order to hear him preach. They found him lacking. In fact, they determined that the works he did, the healings he performed, they were done by the power of Beelzebul. And then we know in the last days, in the darkness of night, in that final day, there would be yet another trial. They would call him before him. They would examine him. They would inspect him. Number one, they would call him to give an account for this testimony that he said that the temple could be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And yet when he stood there in silence, they asked him again. And the high priest asked him, this is from Mark 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. He stood before those that were going to call for his death. He knew when he marched towards Jerusalem, suffering and death awaited him. And in the face of that, he said, I'm the son of man. Go read Daniel. All these things that are said, they're going to come true in me, even while you take my life. Even while you despise me. Even while you examine me and find me lacking, declaring me a blasphemer worthy of death. Don't miss this, church. Every single one of these men, they're going to stand in judgment before the living God. Talk about humility. Talk about meekness. It's the one that created and sustained everything that is. He stood there judged by men, knowing that in the end of days, they will stand before him, and there will not be an answer in their lips. Every word, every thought, every deed they had ever spoken, not least of which... They're calling for the death of the Son of God. They will answer for every single one of those. And yet there he stands, being judged by these men in the name of God, in the name of religion, they would call for his death. The word that's used here for killed, it's not a proper execution. It's not as if 
someone has been tried and truly found guilty and then put to death, this is the word for murder. Make no mistake, the death of Jesus Christ was nothing short of a murder. There was nothing, there was nothing that qualified him for this death. The wages of sin are death, and they stood before the only sinless one that had ever lived. All of this was in the mind of Jesus as he's presenting this shocking reality to his followers. All of this is on his heart and his mind, and this is how he was trying to realign them. Yes, the power. Yes, the glory. Yes, the dominion. Yes, the kingdom that is without end. All of those things are going to come true in me. Daniel, the Psalms, the prophets, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man. I am he, but you must first know that I'm going to suffer and be rejected, and I'm going to die, all according to my Father's perfect plan. Hear that for the first time. You've heard this for so many years, all of you. You grew up in churches knowing my redemption was bought at the cross. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Only God's son would be a worthy sacrifice, a substitute, an atonement for my sins to appease the wrath of the living God. We know this because we've heard it time and time and time again, but for the first time, these men are hearing this. At the highest moment in, in the entirety of Mark's gospel, the highest moment when they finally recognize he is the one. We've been hoping. We've been seeing glimpses, and now we know for sure that he's the one. And then, boom, immediately he says, now let me tell you how this is going to happen. It's not easy news to hear for the first time. But he assures him on the backside of this, I will be raised again. This is the proof. This is the proof that I am who I say I am. This is the proof that everything that I've said will come to pass. For if I can die and raise again, then what promises could I possibly not fulfill? This is proof that the wrath of God has been satisfied. This is the proof that death and sin have been defeated. All these things will be proven in my being raised again. And yet Peter calls him to the side, and he begins to rebuke him. Good old Peter. That dude was not afraid to speak. He had just received some of the highest praise. Jesus had just called him blessed. He had just affirmed the fact that based on his confession that Jesus was the Christ, that was going to be the very foundation of this church, that the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. And by the way, the word there for hell, it's death. He's saying even death cannot overcome this kingdom that I'm building. And Peter, along with the other apostles and the prophets, they would be the very foundation of the church. And no sooner has he lavished this praise on you, than he shows you the plan. He shows you how this thing is going to happen, and then immediately you call him aside and you rebuke him. Matthew tells us the substance of the rebuke. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Only Peter can acknowledge God's lordship and tell him no within the same sentence. You remember he did this on the, on the rooftop when God told him to take, kill, and eat. Only he could recognize that Jesus was the Christ. He could affirm his lordship in his life and then tell him no. He says, no, Lord, you don't deserve these things. And then you can just picture this as he calls him aside. He says, Jesus, this isn't the way you start a revolution. Now look, I dealt with it when you kept sending away the crowds. I dealt with it when they wanted to make you king and you told them, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. But this is too much. We can't follow after you. You can't usher in a kingdom. You can't be the Christ and the Messiah if you just march right into a trap. If you just march right into a place where you're going to suffer and be killed. Now, I've got to wonder if perhaps Peter didn't hear the part about Jesus raising again. 
Maybe he was just in such shock over this news that he completely missed where Jesus said that he would be raised again. We know that the Jewish people, they had some concept of the resurrection. We know that this was a matter of contention between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And we know that Jesus talked about this with Martha as he was going to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. He tells her, your brother will rise again. This is John 11. Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, for conservative Jewish thinkers, they knew that there was a concept of a resurrection in the last days, but they really couldn't grapple with the idea that someone would be raised here and now. And even these men that had been with Jesus, they had seen him as he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So we, we don't know, again, whether Peter simply missed what Jesus had said or whether he couldn't understand it or he couldn't think rightly about it. But either way, he calls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. This is the same word that's used of Jesus confronting those with unclean spirits. This is harsh. This is not gentle. This is not a suggestion. This is a harsh word from Peter, the leader of the disciples. He's telling him, this isn't going to happen, Lord. You deserve so much better than this, and we don't know what drove it. We don't know whether it was fear. We don't know whether it was selfishness. We don't know whether it was love for Jesus and the idea that he couldn't bear the thought of seeing his Savior suffer. We're not told why, but what we do know is that when you dispute when you set yourself against the straightforward teaching of God, you find yourself doing the work of Satan. Because that's what Jesus tells him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Talk about a roller coaster of a day. You are blessed. God has revealed this to you. And moments later, he is calling you Satan, comparing you to the evil one. This is Peter, the leader of the twelve. The Lord's calling him Satan. The very one for whom hell had been prepared the one whom jesus came to destroy all of his works and we can see why he does this if we look back to the beginning of jesus earthly ministry if we look all the way back at the beginning we see that after the baptism that jesus is led out by the holy spirit into the wilderness and there fasting for 40 days he's tempted by satan and that satan is consistently coming against him trying to convince him that he would just take up his own power just work within his own will just forego suffering in exchange for glory we see in that last temptation as Satan takes him up to a mountaintop, shows him the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, and he, that is Satan, says to Jesus, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Church, as we have discussed all throughout Mark's gospel, Satan knows that the promise made all the way back in Genesis 3, that from the seed of woman will come a man that will crush your head. He knows that all those things find their ending at the cross. He knows that he must do everything he, do, he can to keep the Son of Man from going to the cross. And yet when he knew that he had failed, when he knew that his temptations had not worked, he didn't give up. He couldn't give up. He had no other options. We read in Luke's account of the temptation, Luke 4.13, that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He wouldn't give up. I believe that time after time again, he continued to come after Jesus with these same kinds of temptations. I think that's in part why Jesus continually went to be alone with the Father, because in his humanity, he needed the strengthening of the Holy Spirit that he would endure under this temptation as badly as he wanted to find another way. But we see this, this willingness to submit to God's perfect will, while at the same time, in his human will, saying, I don't want to do this. We see it perfectly at the garden, where he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Submitted perfectly, and yet what we see here is that Peter, he's being used of the devil. He's being used of Satan as he comes back one last time for temptation, as he presumes to look at the Lord, to look at his Christ, and to tell him, far be it from you, you will not go to the cross. You will not suffer. You will not die like a criminal. 
Jesus couldn't allow Peter to go on thinking like this. And so as we read in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 16, 23, his words are, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. The word there, hindrance, it's scandalon. Do you know that word? Please tell me you remember that word. Scandalon, stumbling block, offense. We talked about this with regards to the gospel. That the gospel is an offense. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandalon, an offense to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This cross, everything that was promised there, the goodness of God, the ultimate act of grace and mercy, as God fulfilled his justice and extended incredible mercy to sinners like you and me, not only forgiving us of our sins, but adopting us, Welcoming us us in, not just finding us neutral, but attributing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. All that is found there, it's an offense to the world. It's unfathomable to them. Now, to these early people, it was because the man that dies on 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 a cross, he's accursed. Righteous people don't die on trees. So this was a stumbling block. It was an offense. But to so many today, Why is this such an offense to them? It's a free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. What's the offense? It's because what it says is you can't fix yourself. We're perfectly happy with the idea that God loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us. But the idea that our sins are so deep, that we are so dead in our sins and trespasses, that we are so depraved in our mind and in our will and in our emotion, and yes, even in our body, the concept that it takes the death of God's own son to set us free, that's an offense. Who are you to call me a sinner? Who are you to say it takes something like that? Surely Jesus just died to set an example. Surely Jesus just died to show us how much he hates sins and how much he loves us. No, surely he didn't have to die as a payment for my sin. Surely that's not what it took for me to be made right with God. It's an offense. It's grotesque to the world. And so they cry out, far be it from you, Lord. This is a scandal. Jesus' response to Peter His response to us today is, no, dear friends, you are the scandal. You are the stumbling block. You need to understand that in the teaching of these things, you are doing the very work of Satan. As you resist my straightforward teaching, no matter what your motives are, I believe Peter had had sincere motives. I don't think he woke up that morning and said, you know what? I'm going to slip my way in. I'm going to trick Jesus by calling him the Christ, and then boom, I'm going to hit him with some Satan stuff. This was sincere. He was truly concerned. It was a stumbling block when he heard Jesus preaching to him. And so in his response, he's doing the work of Satan, and then Jesus tells him, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, because the things of man are the things of Satan. You need to understand this. There's a way which seems right to the world, but it leads to death. We plan these paths. We think we're smarter than God. We think we need to call God to decide and advise him about how he needs to work out our salvation about how he needs to run his own universe, not recognizing we're doing the work of Satan because we've got our eyes fixed on the things of man. I want to read to you. Two weeks ago, I read to you from the New Living Translation. Again, I don't do that often, but I want to go back there again, Colossians 3, as we read here this call. Read this call for what is the answer to this then? You see, the world is filled with answers. Churches are filled with answers. What do I do? What do I do when I'm stumbling with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do I do when I struggle to recognize it? Not just at the point of my salvation, but all throughout, from here through glory, when I'm meant to look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and understand just what happened there, when I continue to stumble over this, when I continue to try to earn my own salvation, when I try to preach some gospel other than death to self, what's the answer to this? 
And there's no, there's no shortage of answers out there. The world's going to tell you all kinds of different things. But listen to what he says. Colossians 3, beginning verse 1 down through verse 4, and then I'm going to skip to 14. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on, heaven, on realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes through Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. The answer is not to figure out the best of the world's wisdom. The answer is not just to go and try to fix your own problems. The best is to fix your eyes on heaven where your Savior sits today, where he intercedes on your behalf, understanding the glories that are found in him. The answer isn't found anywhere else in all the earth but in Christ. Fix your eyes on heaven. How controversial is that today? The world tells you they've got all the answers to all your problems. You've just got to change the things you think about here on earth. And God says, no, you fix your eyes on heaven. You fix your eyes on me. And, beloved, I would remind you that this news that came, this news that we read this morning that was given to Mark, more than likely it was given to him from Peter himself. This was probably a direct word from Peter about what it was that had happened on that day. And the beauty is God wasn't done with Peter yet. He did not cast him aside in that moment. He didn't throw him out of the group in that moment, even as he was being used of Satan as a temptation, as a stumbling block, even as he completely missed the whole purpose behind the Christ's coming. We know that even still, God continued to use Peter. We know that as he continued to walk with Jesus Christ and Jesus continued to touch him and bring him to clearer sight, eventually he would get it. He would be the one that was used with the Holy Spirit as he's filled on the day of Pentecost and he stands before that great crowd. And he there proclaims, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Don't you see? Peter's stupidity didn't disqualify him. Peter's stumbling didn't disqualify him. Peter's lack of understanding didn't disqualify him. He knew that Jesus was Lord. He knew that he was the Christ. He committed to continue walking with him, and because of the healing touch, the sight-giving touch of Jesus Christ, he continued to mold him into what he would be. And even in this lifetime, Jesus was not done with Peter. We know that it wasn't until he saw Jesus that he became like he was. That when he closed his eyes in this life, he was received into heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. Praise God that he does not give up on us in our stupidity. Praise God that he does not give up on us in our stumbling. And praise God that he's got all the answers we need for all of this life, to know him and to walk in holiness in his word. So we fix our eyes on heaven, not on the things of man. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to put the glories of heaven on the bottom shelf where dopes like us could get it. That this isn't a thing for lofty thinkers. This isn't a thing for the greatest minds. This isn't a thing for perfect people. But that if we would come to you with childlike faith, credo, ut, and telegum, we come in belief that we might understand. We don't have to figure it all out. We have to recognize ourselves as sinners and Jesus Christ as the only Savior sent from heaven. And from there, we trust you to reveal to us all that we need to know for salvation and for a life of holiness. 
So, Father, we pledge as a people to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. We pray, Father, that this morning those would be the words of our heart, those would be the words that we sing, those would be the words we meditate on, and we pray that in all these things you would be glorified. Father, as we lift our voices now, we pray that you would be pleased by the words that we sing, that you would be glorified in our presence. To your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.